Ariza blocked by Bogut. Good recovery by Andrew Bogut. Let's get rogue. Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is the basketball series, another episode to bring you all news going on around the league and a lot on the NBA potential finals and a, and a conference finals pro. Do you have your uh, your Celtics gear on for game six? Yeah, I'm not a fan of any team. So thank, thankfully, no, I don't have any team gear. So that's going to be saved. But I will tell you this. I want to uh, issue an apology to the video guy of the Celtics. So during the game, uh, uh, during the the last play where it's getting reviewed, and then they they changed it. What they changed it because of the review. I tweeted at you like a dick and said, "Bogues, the video guy should be fired who told him to challenge it because I, I forgot what it was. Like they found out it was a three and not a two because initially yep. I thought they had him file for a two, but that's like a dick thing to tweet out. I felt like Magic Johnson tweeting out that." You know the the Lakers should fire you know fire their coach or something. So I deleted the tweet in about nine seconds. But I do want to uh, I do want to issue apology. It was a dick thing to do. Not a real <laughs> apology. It's an apology more like I'm an asshole. I don't give I don't do those fucking bullshit apologies. But I will say that it was a dick move on my part. So I will admit to that. I'll get it right out of the way. Even though nobody saw it, it was literally live for about six seconds. So my nine real followers didn't see it. Because they reviewed the foul call, right? Whether it was a foul and then they saw that it was a three instead of a two, right? Yeah. So I'm like, that video guy's fired. And, uh, you know, well, he might have been right because if you look at the replay again, it appears that uh, Jimmy Butler tra- uh, traveled, double dribbled actually. So, yeah. But, but, but they also, obviously can't review it, that. Yeah. Right. And then they put 0.9 back on from 2.1 to not 3. So that motherfucker's mm-hmm. getting a promotion. He might be in the front row tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow mm. And then one of those fucking useless assistants will be in the back. Was well, interesting though. What a, I mean, what a game! Uh, what a what a I mean, what a swingy series. Uh, we have a series, obviously, going to Game Seven. Um, we didn't see this come in. We thought Boston would at least get one more, maybe, and and maybe make it a, a Game Five. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just been it's it's been a really interesting series. It's it's just like almost like Boston has just flicked on a switch, and they look completely different after they were rightfully trounced the first three games um but it's been a mix of things i think i think jimmy and miami they look like they're breaking down a little bit um i think fatigue injuries the way they're playing at that high level especially defensively is very fatiguing style of play uh you look at um jim what jimmy's had to do to carry them over the line he's definitely fizzled out after the the first couple of games of the series he was phenomenal and then he, he hasn't been at a higher level beyond that, um, there were games where he was limping around. You got, you know, Martin banged up. You got Vincent banged up. You got Kevin Love banged up. So this is where I think Boston's depth has been very impressive. And they still play a pretty short rotation for the most part. But you look at Brogdon not being able to go in game six, one of their one of their best players for the season, uh, especially off the bench, they, they don't miss a beat and they're missing one of their best bench guys. So Boston's, I think they're, their depth is really helping in this in this long series um, for stints and the three balls the one for the Boston Celtics when they're, when they're knocking down the three ball at a decent clip um, they're they're very tough to beat and, and it comes in ebbs and flows though that's that's the thing it can it can look horrendous like it did in those especially game three when none of them are going they look they can get they can get trounced by thirty but then they can come back that next night and shoot forty percent and and beat you you know but um, yeah that finish to the 
to the Miami game, Miami Boston game was was phenomenal. Um, it does prove, pro that the whole I don't I don't know if you looked at the clip of how Derek White got the rebound, but the game winning rebound. It goes on something that maybe you know Spo looks at again and pulls his hair out over because he had the inbounder, which was White, not being guarded. Um, he had him he had him kind of face guarding. Uh, whoever was coming off the top of that pick, whether it was Brown or, or Tatum, if you watch a replay, what this did was as soon as White inbounded it, I think Strauss was the inbounder, guarding the inbounder, couldn't couldn't find him for a box out. Um, so an, an interesting one that was probably a costly move. If you stay on the ball there and just provide ball pressure, I think that offensive rebound pro doesn't, doesn't happen. Well, here's the thing, Bogues. I think because of the game so analyzed, right, by every angle, I, I think that, look, I don't mind what he did. He was trying to take away Tatum, right? And anything that you do, any any type of scheme that you do on that, you're gonna take a you're gonna open yourself up for something. You don't you don't put that guy up top. Tatum can make an over the top three, maybe maybe not, right? And then you know you do this move where you put the guy up top and then you get beat for the offensive rebound, and it's a tough it's a tough deal. I I don't blame him. Look, I think that was a smart move. It just, it didn't go, the ball didn't go the way it was, you know, it was going to, does it ball bounce in a wrong way to give White the, you know, White the deal? I don't think it was just a mixed, missed box out. There was really no one to box him out. I just, one of those things Bogues really like, you know. It's great in hindsight is my point. My point is it's great in hindsight. Do you do 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 it again? Do they, if they're in a situation in game seven, do they say, you know, we're going to stay on. And, you know, look, putting heavy ball pressure on with a big like Struess isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, he's probably got a couple of inches on White. But, yeah, in hindsight, we're all experts. But it was just an interesting note. Like he – Yeah. White White, White almost could have had a layup from Smart also in that play, by the way. Um, right. So when Smart shot that quick three, which was a very surprising shot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, he could have just literally dropped that off to Derek White for a layout before the offensive rebound even happened. That's how open he was because Strauss just totally got lost um, on that inbound. And with three seconds, you, you got to, you know, the inbounders sometimes plays a run for the inbounder to come off something and shoot it. Uh, I was surprised how Celtics shot it so quickly. It worked out in their favor. A bit of luck, no doubt, with the bounce, but very, very interesting that they, they went that route. Well, for coaches and players, right? It, it goes to tell you two, show two things. For coaches, how deadly the inbounder is. You know, as far as like throwing an inbounds pass and then back, you know, back screening the inbounder. Um, mm-hmm. For players, I, I tell all my clients that I break down film for, when that ball goes up, it's just human nature. Just watching regular games. When that shot goes, shots go up. Everybody ball watches for the first second, second and a half. If you're an off the ball offensive player, that the first one second, one point five, you gotta, you gotta, like it's like not looking at an eclipse, right? You gotta just cut to the basket, and not only can get, you know, like that inside position that you might be able to get an offensive rebound for, and it's just that's what happened, and you know that shot goes up, he cuts because like not a lot of people do that, folks. A lot of people offensively and defensively ball watch and I think that that's an ample opportunity to get offensive tip backs, you know, tip-ins and things like that because just take advantage of human nature. And human nature is to ball watch. And so many players could get, t- you know, two, three tip-ins a game based on just getting 
inside position because everyone's looking at the ball. And now when they're engaged in the game, you're right in front of them. And there's really nothing they can do except you get a lay-in or foul you. So, hey, look, that was an unbelievable play that's going to go down in history of one of the more bizarre endings to an NBA uh, playoff game conference championship. You're going to be seeing that for decades, you know, for one that everyone thought it was yeah, over. Especially if they move on. If they move on, which yeah. the bookies are saying they will, they move on to the finals. It's going to be that. That's the shot that defines their season. I mean, they were down and out. You know, Boston were. They were. They were on the bottom. You know, half their body was hanging off the canvas and about to fall out of the ring. You know, and they managed to squeak by in, in game four and get that done. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, they, they, momentum's a crazy thing. You know, they go back to go back to Boston and everyone expected them to win that. Um, but then even though you're going back to Miami for game six, that's a two-game winning streak of momentum. You might have figured something out along the way. And that's why these series are they're, they're one of the toughest final series in the world, in my opinion, just because – so much there's so much ebbs and flows and waves and and different tweaks and things that can happen in injuries and all that kind of stuff in, in an NBA seven game series. That's what makes it so appealing for people to watch. Um, I think game to game watching it, watching the adjustments. But then when it gets to these game five, six, sevens, can the team close it out? Oh, they couldn't. They're, they've given them life. They're back in it. You know. So I think it's been great. Uh, as, as lopsided as it was early, it's nice to see Boston had some ticker and, and, and came back and have made this a series. Yeah, I, I love what Missoula did. Uh, with Jimmy Butler, because I was texting during the game, and I'm like, geez, is Butler point-shaven? He's just not engaging. And it just goes goes to show you sometimes you could fall into that trap of thinking that. So I went back and watched the game twice today, and you saw that Boston did a great job of just loading up anytime Butler had the ball. And there was nowhere for him to go. And he got a couple of early fouls, so he had to sort of back up with his aggressiveness you know, early on in the game because of the fact he didn't want that third foul, especially defensively. There was a couple of blow-bys, you know, that you know, I'm like, wow, Jimmy, what are you doing? But I didn't even notice he had two fouls. And, you know, I'm listening to Stan and I'm listening to Reggie Miller say, well, you know, Jimmy Butler's not playing, not playing. So I'm sort of thinking it. Now I'm listening to that and I'm like, yeah, what's he, point shaving? But then you look at it and they just loaded up, loaded up, loaded up. And a lot of times Jimmy just had the ball and he was just sort of literally getting them into offense and then just sort of spacing out somewhere where I think if they get him on the move, if they get him on dribble handoffs to get him going towards the basket to either get driving lanes or at least, you know, draw a second defender to give someone else an open shot or just get to the rim like they've been doing, I think they're going to, they could be in a much better spot or, you know, get him on pick and rolls like in drags in transition to get him moving. I think Jimmy Butler's best served when he's on the move constantly. And I think when you just sort of, he has the ball and he's got to create an avenue uh, from like an isolation situation, not that he can't do it, but I think they got to do a little bit better job with that. I think Bam needs to touch the ball in the high post area to allow him, you know, to face up and drive it or face up and, you know, and, and just be more of a threat. And because I think that Boston's just loading up and now they're taking tough shots. And, you know, look, your role players have been fantastic up to this point, but, you know, it's just they, you, you need more 
you need more production out of Butler. And I think, like you said, you know, in these playoffs, it's just all about adjustments game for game. So, of course, they're going to load up and take the ball out of, you know, Butler's hand. And look, Butler had a, a lot of bad misses too, you know, layups and putbacks and things. But look, you know, he's constantly going to get hit. He's constantly they're going to load up and build walls and things like that. In Boston, if you notice, they were just looking – they were looking for that pick and roll switch to you take advantage of out of you know, to Bam for have Tatum to try to drive by. I thought, you know, Tatum had a great you know first half. Of course, he gave like twenty six or something like that in that first half, and you know didn't have a great second half. But um, I think it's all about adjustments. I hopefully everybody shows up. It's a great game. I think obviously Spolster will do something there. But look, I think playoffs is all about overreacting, and you know. I had about a thousand people call. Missoula should get fired. You read it, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I think that's preposterous. Regardless if he loses 4-0 or, or what have you, I think that, look, you hired a rookie coach that's never coached a minute of NBA basketball as a head coach. You're going to make mistakes. I think the only thing I think staff-wise they could have done a better job giving him more experience in the bench just sort of say, hey, you know, Joe, you might want to might want to think of this or do, do that. Give him some, Give him some guidance, but – you know, look, it just goes to show you, like they were about to throw him, you know, throw him over the over the bridge after game three, and now everybody's celebrating him. It just it goes to show, like you just have to have tunnel vision with this. You have to stay focused. No one, including me, thought they could even get close to this point of tying it up three three. But like, they're gonna love you when you're up. They're gonna hate you when you're down. You just gotta sort of deal with it. That's the NBA, Bogues. I'm sure you dealt with that in your career. You know, as far as like the ups and downs, love you, hate you. You know, you're the best thing since sliced bread. You're the biggest bust ever. You know, based on like a game a week, a month. It's it's crazy, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And we're seeing a lot with what we've spoken about. It's almost better not to make it deep in the playoffs. You won't get fired. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, with with the Warriors, it got it got to a point where. We were so good and winning so many games that a loss people would overreact to, and you just like, you know, whether it be local sports radio people or whatever, you're like, you're like, what, well, you know, we're, we're, we're ten and two on the month, and we just lost one that we should have probably won, and people are overreacting. That's just that's just the way it all goes. It's it's a it's a reactive league, and usually the good the good organizations, front offices, GMs, coaches, they don't they don't react to what they're supposed to be told to react to meaning what the media perception is or what ESPN saying or what agents are put, leaking out there. They don't react to it. And they're, they're usually the most steady. Your Miamis, your San Antonio's, your OKC's, your Utah. They kind of have their their mission and they have their strategy of how they're going to do things and they try not to overreact to it. Whereas you see a lot of teams, especially big market teams, the Lakers and uh, the Knicks and Brooklyn to an extent, they're very reactive. Um, oh, we need to get that big player name. Let's just do it. Let's just move this and let's do that. And let's. Let, well, you're not worried. You're not too. You're not worrying enough about team culture and the vibe in the locker room and the front office. And is everyone on the same page? It's just kind of. Uh, that, that's what I've seen with the NBA, and we see that in the playoffs too. The reactions. That's what I love about the playoffs. The reactions from like game one to two, then from two to three, then one team wins two straight, and then the other team suck. What the hell's going on in Miami? You know, like. That's the beauty of it, and you you love to see how um, people get so fired up about it. But look, the, the Celtics obviously favorites going home. I think it's the first game seven that's on a home floor where a team's been down three zero in NBA history too. By the way, so they have a chance to make history here and and win. Uh, we'll get into that in the stats. But Tatum's leading them. I mean, twenty seven a night 
on 48%. Um, 23% from three, though, pro. They're all shooting pretty poorly from three, bar Derek White. Derek White and Grant Williams, funnily enough. Grant Williams is at 44%, and uh, Derek White's their best three-point shooter at 55. He's had a hell of a series, by the way. He's, he's averaging 13 uh, 13 points off the bench for him in, in, in under 30 minutes. Marcus Smart's been better the last couple of games, noticeably, especially from the three. He's got he got it up to a respectable 39%. Jalen Brown still 18% from three, but shot it shot it much better yesterday and and uh, actually got to his spots a bit better. Um, I felt like he, he took some long twos because that's what they gave him, but he took them in rhythm. He wasn't trying to force it, and he was better. He's averaging 19 and and for for the Heat, Butler. I mean, like I said, those first two games, I thought he was phenomenal. Think he's pretty much disappeared from the series to an extent, even though they lost by that that a big win uh, in three. Um, so that the numbers were deflated a little bit with minutes, but I, I just don't think he's been that same Jimmy. And it looked like he was limping in a couple of games. Uh, he showed up in probably the last two minutes of uh, Game Six and was you know a bit more aggressive, made some big buckets for him. But he needs to come out from the outset. You can see they go as far as he takes them. Um, he's he's twenty four points, seven rebounds, six assists, two and a half steals. Um, Caleb Martin's been, I think, a guy that's con- consistently hit big shots for him, along with Gabe Vincent. Those two guys, at least in, the, in their in their, their wins, uh, constantly hit big shots when they need a low shot clock. We need a three. Boston's making a run. They 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 they'd score something, and Bam's their fourth leading scorer, as you said. He need, we we do need more from Bam for them to have a chance to go through. I mean, he's got Al Horford guarding him, who's a very very good, smart. IQ defender, but he's not the old Al, Al Horford that, that could move his feet with Bam. I think I've noticed a few times Bam's a bit hesitant to go at him one-on-one. Um, I'd like to see him attack that a little bit more, attack that matchup, get Horford into foul trouble, make them play Williams longer minutes or go small. Bam's at 15, 9, and 4. Not horrible clips, 50% from um, from the, the field and 75 from the line. Duncan Robinson continues to play well for them as well, but I'm looking forward to it. I love Game 7. Uh, I think the, the swings of this series – but I, I tipped Boston at the start of this series, and now I can now I can now I can talk about that. I wasn't going to talk about it last week, but I took Boston at the start of this series four three, and I'm sticking with that. Pro, who do you have? Go mm, Miami with this one, Bogues. Miami on the road Miami. in Boston. Okay. You know, ah, what are you going to do? I might as well go with separate from. Ah, I mean, it's it's so hard though. Like it's yeah. Which Boston shows up tomorrow? You know, which Miami shows up? You know, which. I don't. I don't really think there's a major adjustment either team can make. I think it's just going to come down to who's more locked in and more physical, and, and second chance points, offensive rebounds, uh, loose balls, all the all the crap you see on a coach's whiteboard before a game. That's what it's going to come down to in a game seven, right? It's going to come down to that. Obviously, there's going to be a point in the last two or three minutes where a Tatum or a Butler or whoever's going to have to make some big shots to either keep them keep their lead or to get them back in the game, no doubt. But through the course of the game, I think those. Those those physical one percent plays are just going to be so important in a game seven, bro. Yeah, I, I do too. I I, th- I think that both teams are going to try to take advantage of the switch. I think that um, you know Boston's going to continue to try to get you know try to get Bam you know matched up with Tatum and allow him to try to drive through. He's been pretty successful at that. And I think for Miami, you got to do the same with you know, like I said before. You know, trying to get Butler and, and pick and roll switch, try to get you know Rob William, Robert Williams get into his body, trying to get Horford, trying to get a switch, you know that that you could try to turn a corner and get to the basket, draw fouls, and you know, you, you need some activity at the rim. Boston's gonna you know needs to shoot the three better. There's a lot of 
a lot of things that could be done here. Like you said, there's not a lot of major changes that would be made by either team. You know, um, it's interesting, you know, as the playoffs go on, you know, look, Brogdon's hurt, but look, Grant Williams, they were about to, you know, they were about to throw overboard in Boston early on, especially getting Butler going. But um, now he's a better matchup than Brogdon. You know, Brogdon's hurt, but, you know, I, I think a lot of people have been talking about the idea that like Grant Williams doesn't need the ball. He guards really well. He can shoot threes consistently where Brogdon can give you energy and, and scoring off the bench, but he does dominate the ball at times. So it's interesting. Same thing on, on Miami side, you know, they went with Kevin Love in the starting lineup for a while. I know he is banged up, but you know, now he's sort of unplayable in certain, in this, these situations where you, know, you can go with, you know, Martin Vincent and things like that you know, um, in, in stretches, it's, it's, it's an interesting deal. Now, Duncan Robinson missed two really key threes, which he's been great in the playoffs. It'll be interesting how that affects the psyche in a game seven, where you could have clinched the game with two threes really late in the game. You know, do you come back with just tunnel vision? You just sort of dust it off. Hey, look, it happens. It happens. I'm going to be locked in. Or are you going to be thinking about that? Look, we've seen that happen in playoffs, you know, a long time ago with, you know, with Nick Anderson, with, with Orlando, you know, getting fouled, not being able to make free throws. We talk about that a lot in the show. Can you come back game seven? Just say, you know what? You know, I'm just going to let it fly anytime I'm open. And that's the one thing that Miami does. Not only they they make you sort of a role player when you're a role player, but they they really encourage you, look, we got to have you on the floor to do this. So if you're not going to be able to do it, we got to find someone who, else, who, you know, who can, I think, continue to, you know, sort of encourage him to shoot three, see where that's going to go, because he's going to be a big factor in them winning or losing, being able to stretch the floor and make threes consistently. So... Lowry, you know, has been up and down. He's been pretty, you know, pretty bad the last few games. You know, is he going to come back? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ifs and ands or buts about this series that, you know, it's all going to come down to tomorrow night and see what happens. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing that one tomorrow. So uh, we'll drop this pod right before that game so people can get a feel for what's going on. Hopefully they have a listen right before the game starts. Uh, moving on to Lakers and Denver. That finished with a sweep. Um, it was... A closer series than what a sweep usually would be, in my opinion. We both spoke about the fact that LA were competing. They were in a lot of these games. They they did make it a series, um, that's for sure. But they, they go down by a couple of points late in that game four and get sweeped. I think the Lakers overachieved this season, Pro. I don't know what you, what you feel, um, but considering the start of their season and the first half of their regular season, they were some shit. You know, they were, we were laughing about that. They weren't even get a play and see the way they're playing, and they almost didn't. They surge in that second half of the year post-trade. They got a bit more help, um, some guys that did help in the regular season. So I would say, you know, if you're a Lakers fan, as much shit as we give them, I think it was a very good year for them considering the circumstances they had around around everything going on. Now, should preseason, they should have definitely been, you know, a, a, you'd say a top six, seven team. Um, but we just thought with the way things have gone there, their age, it just sometimes they just don't look like they want to play basketball. But they, they should be commended. Jokic MVP, quite clearly, his numbers, absolutely insane numbers, um, you know, all-time numbers, really, when you when you look at the metric. He's, he was, you know, just under 28 points, 14.5 rebounds, 11.5 assists on, on just insane clips, you know, 50% from the field, 47% from three, and, you know, 78% from the free throw line. Amazing. And then you look at Jamal Murray, and even better clips again. I mean, Jamal Murray was 
Jokic carried them consistently through the series, but there were some lulls where, where Jokic wasn't scoring it as well, wasn't as involved, where Jamal Murray just absolutely took over two or three minute blocks in almost every game. And he finishes with, you know, 32 and a half points, 52% from the field, 40% from three, 95% from the line, along with six rebounds and five assists. And three steals is the other thing that he had in this series that was pretty impressive. But, um, yeah, just, just an amazing, amazing growth from Jamal Murray. He'll Mike Malone talk about when he did his knee, he was kind of teary-eyed and saying, you guys are going to trade me, I'm damaged goods. And Mike Malone spoke about that at a press conference, a really cool story about him saying, no, you're our guy, we're sticking with you. And to see him bounce back like this and carry his team to the finals on the offensive end um, has been sensational. And, and the Nuggets just just too deep, um, too many too many weapons, especially in that series. For the, Nugget, for the Lakers, I, I didn't think LeBron played that well in this series, Pro. And then you look at the final stats – and he's at 28 points, 10 assists, and nine and a half rebounds. So, look, we know he's very good at getting his numbers, even in bad games. But I didn't think he was that good in this series. I, I felt like there were spurts where he was, but it felt – I don't know what game it was. It was game, game two or three where he didn't even shoot a shot for the first 18 minutes. Like, he went through these weird kind of ebbs and flows of being aggressive and not aggressive. I don't know what that was about. But he was a little banged up. There's no doubt about it. Um but, you know, as pro we'll get to, there's a new trend currently starting in the NBA when you get knocked out of the playoffs. We'll get to that in a second. Anthony Davis, their second best with uh, 27-14 a night. But uh, the Lakers out. Uh, a lot of a lot of non-Laker fans celebrating. Uh, a lot of Lakers fans are angry. But uh, how did you see this series, pro, before we get into the laughable parts of it? Look, I mean, Jokic was fantastic. Murray really stepped up. But... It was really the role players, in my opinion, that really made a huge impact because that's what it comes down to. And I know I'm, I'm very pro, no pun intended, very pro role player because the fact, especially in the playoffs, someone else has to step up and make plays because, you know, game planning and game to game, they're going to try to take the ball out of your best player's hands or best two players' hands. It's going to force someone else to make a play. I thought Michael Porter Jr. was really good making shots. You know, um, Aaron Gordon was really good cutting and making plays off the ball and, and just being tough. Guys like Bruce Brown played well. Jeff Green and Spurts played really well for them. And, and I thought that, like, I, I thought that was a big part of the game, and they're just tough and gritty and just stayed with it. And, look, it wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't much of a series as far as a threat from the Lakers, but that's just sort of – Sort of where I saw Denver, you know, and Jokic was fantastic. Um, you know, he was just phenomenal in the series, just being able to pick them apart in so many different ways. And, you know, look, for the Lakers, they played really well, um, c- considering. Uh, they were in every game. They really competed like they did all year. I didn't think they were going to make, you know, based on the beginning of the year, I didn't think they were going to make the play-in. Not trying to fool around, not trying to be funny for once. I I really didn't think that they were good enough. Now, they weren't good enough, but they made those trades and those moves, and they really put themselves in a good position. I thought guys like Austin Reeves played really well. Jared Vanderbilt play, played well early in the playoffs, sort of fizzled out, you know, by the time the conference final was there. I thought Anthony Davis played really well in spurts, you know, really dominating at times. And then, you know, some of the role players, Shorter played okay, and Russell played okay. Reeves was really good. Um, didn't see much out of Wani Walker. And, 
you know, but I, th- I thought Rui Hachimura played excellent. I thought he increased his value, you know, early on when they got him in the trade. Like, I really liked him when he was on Washington. They bring him in. And it's, you know how it is, folks. When you get traded, it's like you go to a new situation, especially during the season. You got to get your confidence. You got to get your f- sort of rhythm with the team and playing with certain lineups and things. And look, it- it's really hard, especially someone like him who's really young, who really hasn't been through that whole trade thing. And I thought he did really well in the playoffs. He was able to make shots, make plays. Was really, a, you know, a, a fourth, a really solid third, fourth options at times for them. And I thought, I thought he played well. And um, yeah, Denver was just too good. They just, you know, you know how it is. It's well, you know, the Lakers. I mean, the Miami Heat Boston series is different. But when you're just out town, they just didn't have enough talent. You know, look, LeBron played really well. You know, in in times he was dominating. At times there was there was some sort of lull, you know, in his game. But I thought he played great. I thought Davis played really well. But they just didn't have enough at the end of the day. You know, James was playing hurt, as we'll we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I thought even through that, you probably everyone was sort of blaming age with some of the mistakes he was making and things. But you know how you are when you're not feeling well. You know your body's not responding like it usually does, or at least we'll take it take it for its word. That you know he's probably just messed up a little bit mentally, even though he still averaged twenty, almost a triple double. But yeah, just just not enough at the end of the day. And Vanderbilt, you know, it goes to show you. Look, when you're a non-offensive player, this is what I'm talking about with with players. Get your fucking shot right. If you can't shoot in this game, it's really hard for you to be on the floor. And he's dynamic defensively, and he's fucking played really well at times. But if you can't make shots, you it's really hard. You got to be really, really dominating at other things if you can't make shots consistently, especially at the free throw line or make open jump shots because they're just going to leave you open and they're going to go double somebody else. And if you can't really produce, they can't find minutes for you. And that's sort of what happened to them later in the series. So, yeah, it was, you know, hats off to Denver, man. They, they, they really played well. They kept it together and, you know, they're moving on. 100%. And... We'll get to LeBron now. He he's a master of the narrative, um, in my opinion. I think he's, you know, some people argue he's the greatest player to play and whatnot. I, I think what he's a goat at is mastering where he wants the narrative to go and making sure that it's in his favor at all times. And what I mean by that, and why I say that, is he goes into a press conference after being swept four zero. No one talks about the sweep pro because he mentions that he's considering not coming back and he might retire. Now, everyone knows that he's not going to retire. Everyone is like, you know, the whole son thing, he's not going to retire, he's not going to, he's not going to retire going out on a sweep, all that kind of stuff. But he, he sets the table with that at a press conference and then the rest of, the, rest of it's about, oh, what do you mean? Well, you're not coming back? And that's all you read about. You don't read about he just got swept out of the conference finals, which is – and I give him. I'm not saying this in a bad way. I'm giving him credit because he he's him and his people that he has around him. They they're, they're masters of this of, of this universe of dictating the narrative. We know why ESPN spoken about every day. Michael Malone was getting frustrated within the series. We spoke about it last week, where it's Lakers LeBron narrative on ESPN every day. Of course it is. Um, that's that's how they want it. That's how they want it to be. And that was an amazing one. And the new trend pro is is now what? What's what's our new trend in the NBA that you're seeing? 
if you get eliminated from the playoffs, you or or you're you're about to get eliminated, you and the uh, the PR team of that the PR person from that team announced that you're playing with a torn fill in the blank, torn ligament, <laughs> torn you know you know it, it's unbelievable. Like every like I, announce it during the thing. Hey, LeBron's playing with this. Or this guy Brogdon's playing with that. Or you know this guy's playing with this. But it's 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 interesting. That when these guys are getting eliminated, you hear it all the time. Well, he had a torn of torn plantar. Uh, I don't. Even, I can't even pronounce it. Plantar fascia. Uh, yeah, plantar fascia. You know, that's like that is like nine point nine out of ten. You know, times ninety nine percent of the time, that's what's used. It's usually a torn plantar or, or some ligament or that I'd never heard of before. It's unbelievable. Now, look, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's interesting that you have to go to that if you're going to get eliminated, you know, or, or when you're winning, I think you'll do it. You know, the trend will now, it'll sort of like take another step, another level where when you're winning, it'll leak out that, Oh, this guy's been playing with a torn labrum the whole series. Oh, wow, he had to even battle through more adversity for this championship. And there's a guy with a flute behind him playing it in the in the press conference. Like this guy's like a you know a, a, a Greek god or something like that playing through. Oh God, you know he played with you know three three toes you know three toes on his left foot. It's uh, it's unbelievable that this stuff that comes out during the playoffs. And LeBron has released that he potentially will be getting surgery in the offseason. There's a few other players, Brogdon now, with some injuries. And I'll give people a, a tip. When, when you're this far in the playoffs, even in the first round, most of your roster's hurt. <laughs> like you played, you played 82 games, or not anymore. Most guys are playing 60 or 70, besides the point. You get to a grueling seven-game series like what the Warriors and Sack went through or one of those first-round series that went deep. You're carrying an injury throughout the playoffs, period. Like I remember back in the Warriors days, Steph's ankle was really messed up one playoffs, and then he then he hurt his knee really bad. Iguodala was playing through back spasms. I broke well fractured a rib in the what year was that? That was the year we were going into play Memphis. So I've come out with a bad rib from the the series before, and then I'm going into Memphis having a guard bloody Zebo with a with a messed up rib. So I remember like we had to get all this all this padded stuff wrapped around me because I knew Zebo's going to test my rib once he figures out it's sore. So, but to my point is everyone's carrying something and there was always there was always a thing that if you're on the court, you're healthy enough to play. Don't then use that to, to change the narrative after a loss. You know what I mean? That's for the media to do and that's for the fans and whatever. But as a, as a team and as a player, that was always an understanding in the NBA that if you're, you're out on the floor competing – you don't. You don't personally then use that as an excuse, and we're starting to see that a lot now. And it's it's, it's kind of an insurance policy for guys to be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, he played bad because he was his, his back was messed up, or he played bad because he, you know, he had a bad ankle." But it's like, well, then don't play if you're going to use that as an excuse. Don't play. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. If you're out on the floor in pro sports, unfortunately, even at eighty percent, people are like, "Well, you're good enough to play. You're good enough to give effort. You're good enough to play well." So we are. We are seeing a bit of a trend there, which is disappointing to see, but good on LeBron with the narrative, just completely steered away from a sweep. No one's talking about that. They're just talking about, uh, will he come back next year and when's he having surgery? Where to Where to for LA from here? So looking at their at their cap right now, LeBron James, obviously, he can opt in. Well, he's guaranteed for next year, um, but he, obviously that goes away if he if he retires, which he won't, and then has a, uh, a player option beyond that, I believe. Um 
Anthony Davis, he's got similar deal to, to LeBron, a little bit under his money by three or four million, but very, very similar. Guaranteed for next season, player option the following. D'Angelo Russell's a free agent. Um, was pretty pretty bad for the extent of the playoffs, bar a few games, maybe against Golden State. So I'm interested to see there what they do. Malik Beasley has a team option at $16 million. Um, I doubt they picked that up considering the past the past season. Um, didn't didn't really play a whole lot for him in that playoff push. But you never know, strange things happen. Uh, who else they got? Austin Reeves is the big one. I mean, you're 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 saying twenty a year at a start, pro? Minimum. Yeah, you'll mm-hmm. you'll see him about twenty. About twenty. Vanderbilt, still a pretty, pretty bargaining contract. He's on four point six next season, then becomes a free agent after that. Hachimura. Uh, has a qualifying offer for 8.5. If they don't take that, they can extend, I believe, right, Pro. So, uh, And your guy, Mo Bumba's contracted as well. Remember he was coming back mid, mid this series? That was the announcement that they were going to they, they put out. That was the biggest – there was like a three-day period where it was, was like great. Jordan – where fucking MJ was coming back. Like, you know, he faxed the league, I'm back, and Adam Silver faxed him back. Who the fuck is this? <laughs> So, uh, it's not my bumper's fault, but but yeah, he they said he was back for three or game three or four, like made it a huge announcement, and then still still didn't, still didn't get out, yeah, still didn't get so, out there. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't release the whole statement for summer league, not for the playoffs, <laughs> for summer league. Yeah, yeah, but but where do you where do you see they're also going? Schroeder's also a free agent, um, and the rest. I mean, the the rest of the guys are. A pretty bargain basement type guys or fringe guys. Lonnie Walker's also a free agent who who I think can has found a little niche to maybe be a microwave off the bench, but their their roster's kind of all over the place. I don't see Russell coming back. Uh, there are rumors that they want to try to link him to get bring back a Kyrie Irving type that's been pushed back heavily by the Mavs publicly. But um who do they keep on this roster? Is, is Russell staying? And and do you think they'll pay Reeves? Do you think they will pay Reeves or you get it somewhere else? I think now, the only thing that happens with this Bogues is he sort of falls in, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it sort of falls into the um, to the Jalen Brunson deal where they've got early bird rights on him. I think they could offer him four years, 52 maximum. That's all they could offer him. So that's going to be the problem where somebody else could give him a lot more money. So it's going to be tough for them to really do um, – sort of what they want with him as far as like if somebody offers him 20 million, I don't know if they can go over it. I don't know the whole rule on that. Um, where like, I know he's restricted because it's under four years, but if your early bird rights, you know, I think you're only allowed to pay him a certain amount of money. I could be wrong on that, but if I'm them, obviously he, he's going to be, he's going to be somebody that, to me is really like he's a priority. Um, you know, Russell not a priority. You know, there's no chance that there's gonna be a sign and trade for Kyrie Irving. No fucking chance. You might as well move move the team to China if I'm Dallas, if I'm gonna do that. There's no fucking chance I'm doing that. Um so right now you're looking at look, um there a lot of their cap is so they they I think they got about forty million or so to spend, um if they renounce everybody and and they just sort of you know they're gonna have to renounce a lot of free agents you know with, with guys that are free agents if they want to sort of up and, and get a third piece but 
I don't think there's going to be anybody available that's going to be this great player, right? And I think if they could re-sign Reeves, um, they could clear out some players like a Beasley, like a Russell. The problem is you clear Russell out. Now, I'm not a big Russell fan, but he, he does average about 17 a game. Like, where does where do you replace that with? Now, I, I think a young player... And they can't replace his $30 million like for like, right? Yes, they can't because, yeah. you know, be, like they'll have about that to spend, maybe a little more in free agency. Again, I could be wrong. Um, but again, you're going to have to fill holes in this roster. They need another guy to go to. And the problem is sometimes guys like that aren't really available. I really like a young player they drafted in the second round last year. Max Christie, who played a little bit in the playoffs here and there, but obviously he's not ready yet for that for that like next next step to start. So they're going to have to fill these these roles in with something. I sort of like Lonnie Walker, but you know, again, he wasn't used at the end of the year. I think you got to re-sign Rui Hachimura. That becomes the priorities for me. Is to re-sign Hachimura, re-sign Reeves if you can. But I think that there's going to be another team that offers, you know, if if they could only offer him four years, fifty-two. Like if I'm Dallas, that's a no-brainer to me. You got to get him in. You know, you got to like to me. I would probably try to get him into my lineup with Luca and things like that, just for another guy, or even coming off the bench with a big role if they could pay him more than the Lakers do. It's going to be really tricky re- trying to reset this roster. They don't have a lot of weapons that they could trade to get anything back. I like Vanderbilt a lot. They got him for one more year. But to get any real value for him in trade, you're going to have to attach him to these contracts that they don't really have to attach him to, you know, unless it's like a sign and trade situation to get a really good, uh, to get a really good asset. So you can't really attach him to anybody. You know, Mom, well, Bomb is, you know, um, partially guaranteed, non-guaranteed. So maybe, yeah, I mean, there's really nothing you can do. But I think that Reeves and Hachimura are the two guys you got to figure out and what you're going to do with them. And then you go on from there and then you just sort of piece together your, you know, use your mid-level exception and things like that, where a lot of that's going to be in play. But there's really not like this ain't this ain't a video game. It's not like you're going to like sign three guys to these max contracts or things like that. It's just it's not there. You don't have. You can't really get that help now. You do you re-sign Reeves? And I, now I think that if Reeves does re-sign with them, I think they could like go over the cap and then re-sign Reeves, so they could use all the money with another player, and then they could go over the cap to sign their own guy. But I, I expect Reeves to get to to get offered a, a bigger deal somewhere else. And you know, my my guess is going to be the Mavericks if I had to guess anything. But who knows? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for the Lakers because they they kind of Russell hasn't been great for them. It's going to be a bigger number, but you don't get that money back like for like to just go and spend anywhere. That's a problem with the way the cap works. So it will be very interesting to see who they bring back. Schroeder's the other one who left left a lot of money on the table. I can see them bringing him back for us, you know, two year fifteen or something like that. That'd yeah. be a pretty good deal for him. But um, yeah, yeah. As for the rest of their roster, there are a lot of young guys that are not making much money because obviously LeBron and. And Anthony Davis are taking the bulk of it, but uh, we'll watch that space. We'll see where they end up, but um, they are definitely not getting any younger. All right, moving on to news. Adrian Griffin gets a head coach in spot of the Milwaukee Bucks. So I played with Griffin, funnily enough, my one of my years under Scott Skiles. He was the he was basically a player coach at that point. He didn't play a lot of minutes for us, but they loved having him around just because he was, you know, very good with with what he did as far as a locker room presence, a veteran presence, very soft-spoken but very thoughtful. So interesting to see how he goes. They, they turned down Atkinson and Nick Nurse um, 
for that for that head coaching role. And I, I would I would assume that Giannis had a huge huge plane in what was going on. I read that they they sent the um, the coaches out the last three candidates to go and meet with Giannis at his home. I think so. I know that was a big big part of it. But uh, you think it's a good hiring by the Bucks? Yeah, I, I do. I I've known Adrian Griffin for a long time. He, um, you know, um, he was a minor league player that sort of had a scrounge. I know his agent really well. You know, started off with the Boston Celtics, then moved on to like the, the Dallas Mavericks. Played with a bunch of teams, but hardworking guy. Um, he's been an assistant coach multiple places. Uh, he got in a little bit of trouble legally when he was in Toronto. He was going to become a, new, a head coach a year or two ago. Actually, his mom was uh, worked in the same daycare my daughter went to across the street from my house. Uh, don't that's an ironic deal, but um, good guy. Play, you know, um, very much respected and liked by players. I think that you know, even though he's a first time head coach. Look, they're 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 locked and loaded, ready to go. I think you know you don't. It's I think that you're hiring a first time head coach. It's a, it could be a little risky, but I think that because of the fact that that team and unit's been been together for a long time, they just need a guy that that's been around that they respect that they can go forward with. And I like it. I like it. It's not a retread. It's not just another coach that they that they went a little bit outside the box with this hire and. I, I like Griffin. I think he'll be pretty good. You know, they'll probably put him with an experienced staff, you know, with them, with his assistants. And I think that, uh, I think it's going to do a pretty good job. Look, they're, they're right there. and They're right there. And they're, they're knocking on the door to make the finals again. They get arguably one of the best players to play the game. And they've got a really good supporting cast with them. So I think it's a good hire. I, I sort of like it. Interesting one. I, I just, the only question I have is the honest is in win now mode. Um, do they have the patience for a fresh new head coach to go through his ups and downs? That's the only concern I yeah. have, uh, which I think they, they obviously are because they've hired him, but that would be my only concern rather than bringing in someone who's, I guess, been in that realm. Um, but look, Nick Nurse, I, you know, we've, we've, we've all heard can be testier, the testiest of times um, where – you know, sometimes he rubs guys the wrong way. And Kenny Atkinson's also had a history of that too. So maybe – they're worried about that a little bit, and um, but I think Griffin will do a good job. I think he's very methodical and spends a lot of time, um, you know, watching film and doing all those things. At least when I was with him, and, and just knew the game, a high basketball IQ player when he played. Look, he wasn't the most skilled or athletic guy. Basically, was a, what a six six four five at that point. Um, played a little bit of the three back then, where you can get away with it, but uh, wasn't a shooter, wasn't any of that. But still managed to etch out an NBA career. So that tells you that he has you basically have to have an a basketball IQ because it's really the only skill set you have left to try to hold yourself um, for a roster spot and he did that. But um, we'll see how that goes. Coming on, Anthony retires, pro. Um, finally. Uh, you wouldn't say blackboard from the league, but something fell apart towards the end of his career, which was a shame where, he, you know, I thought he was still pretty reasonable for Portland when he was there and whatnot. But I think, you know, I think teams were just scared of bringing him in and him being the biggest voice in the room around a young group and, just it ended up somewhat subtly having him, I wouldn't say, you know, blackballed from the league because teams probably just didn't want to touch it for the risk versus reward for a lot of young teams weren't there. But a phenomenal career nonetheless. I mean, he was he was an absolute menace. Um, I got to play against him obviously with Denver. Uh, when he was a much he was a much different player in Denver than he was to New York, in my opinion. He was he was on the rim in the paint 
constantly seeking contact with Denver. Whereas with New York, he was he was more more methodical with just elbow extended post ups, getting the free throw line. wasn't as much of of trying to get to the rim and 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 dunk on people. Whereas in Denver, he could give you both. You could go on these scoring bunches where he dunk on you three straight plays and then hit a three and then get to the free throw line. You know, so he he was um, yeah phenomenal player and. And just just unbelievable numbers over the course of his career. Average twenty two a night over the course of his career, I believe. Obviously, the, the the later end of his career was was bouncing around a little bit, and his numbers went heavily down. His best year was twenty eight and twenty eight point seven a night with the Knicks. But um, yeah, pro. I mean, a, a very very good player who will go down as as a Hall of Famer. One of the more prolific scorers that I've ever seen. Um, I remember when I I knew his high school coach. Uh, he went to Oak Hill Academy in Virginia and, you know, talk, you know, seeing him, you know, work out at Jordan's camp in the summer and in Santa Barbara and things and, and just seeing him just progress throughout his whole career. And look, he, he was a great player. And look at the end, I think that what happens is a player at his caliber. It's not like a guy who averaged like 17, 18 points a game. I mean, you know, like he was out putting up 27, 28 a night and just one of the more biggest talents in the league in the last 15, 20 years. And what happens to players like that, Bogues, in, in my opinion, is it's really hard for them to downshift. You know, if, if a guy's averaging, like a guy like Middleton, right, just just sort of throw a name out of the book, you know, out of the, out of the blue there. When Middleton's got a downshift, I think he'll be, you know, he won't be happy about it, but I think it won't be that hard for him to do. A guy who's averaged 20 a game, you know, for the last few years or so, that to downshift to a role player off the bench when he gets older, right? When he gets a much older, like, like when Carmelo was 35, 36 years old. But I think when you're an elite player, it's really hard for you to take that off the bench role, you know, not playing, not starting every night, not the main focus. You know, even guys like Kobe, it was really hard. It, it, it would have been almost impossible for him, you know, to bring in other players to say, it's the same thing with LeBron, where like when they're getting up in age, you'd be like, hey, look, we need to bring in a guy better than you. And we have to sort of, you know, like decrease your role a little bit. Those guys really have a hard time with that. And I think that he really fought that when he went to like, you know, OKC in Houston, right? And then he was out of the league and then, he gets picked up by Portland and then like Portland sort of, he embraced that role a little bit, you know, that second year in Portland where he only started like three games. And then when he was at the Lakers, he was okay. But I think after that teams are like, you know what, you know, because of past sort of your know, reputation, we're just not going to bring him in. You know, he's going to want shots. He's going to take away from our, our team. I don't think he's going to be a bad influence, you know, like socially or anything like that. I just think that, hey, look, we'd rather get younger guys and other other types of players rather than get, get a guy that, you know, might want to go back to his glory days of being an ISO player and scorer. It just, you know, it's too bad. But look, Hall of Famer, first ballot, you know, really talented player, um, just, you know, made his name in Denver and then, you know, traded in that big trade to New York. And then just sort of after the New York days sort of, you know, just went down and down. And, you know, look, he finished up his career in 21-22 with the Lakers. So, yeah, great career, man. And, you know, it's just a, he, he was a pleasure to watch. He was really, really fun player to watch. He was. We'll go down as one of the greats to play the game. Uh, obviously got a chip. Did he, did he get a chip too with the Lakers in the bubble year? I believe he did, right? Uh, was no, he, he didn't. Was it, That's he came 21, the year after. 22. Yeah. In 1920, he was with Portland. 
Yeah. So he's been no chip, right? No chip. That's the only thing. No, you know. no championship. No. Mm-hmm. No championship. Yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. That's that. Uh, some more rule changes in the NBA Pro that are going to be discussed. Uh, the NBA will potentially potentially look at awarding teams a second challenge if their first one is successful. You think that's a good thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not a big fan of like challenge after challenge after challenge, but you know what? I think if you challenge, um, I don't think it should be unlimited. I think the one time is good. Like you get it back. You know, I, I think it's important, especially you see it, you know, when, when, when it comes down to the last 90 seconds or so. And if you have that extra challenge, you know, it's good to have that in your pocket to be able to use. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. What, what about you? Yeah, I think it's good. I, I like the, the NBL does it where you keep it the whole time if you got it right. Um, but uh, it never really gets to the point where a coach has, has eight challenges that are right in a row. So like people that say, oh, well, it's going to be too much stoppage. Generally, it's once, twice, and you've lost it anyway. But I like the fact that, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't be penalized if you're right. And this is a good a good move. I think they're going to trial it in, uh, in Summer League. And they're also – NBA's competition community is discussing the potential of an in-game penalty for flops that would result in a technical foul free throw. So they're going to try that in the summer league as well. That's that's a given uh, considering what we've seen in this playoffs. There's been – and every team's a culprit. It's just a matter of degree. Some teams do it more than others. Some teams have more floppers than others. There's offensive players that are heavily, you know, trying to trick referees into getting free throws. I think this is great. You know, you give you give uh, players a technical foul and a free throw, and I think it's going to start to eradicate. I think even one free throw is too light. I think you go two free throws from the start. I think I think you give you give everyone a warning. Once there's been one flop on the team, that's what they're doing FIBA. Your team's got a warning now for flopping. If you do one more, it's two free throws because that'll be that'll hurt much more than one. The one free throw thing, yeah, I don't think it moves any. It's like a defensive three seconds. Like I would I would camp in there. And I knew as soon as I got one call, they're not going to call another one for another quarter or two. So then you can just get away with camping in there again. You know, it's one's not a big enough penalty, but I think two free throws, especially late game, um, huge. But you'd agree it's probably much needed right now, pro, right? Yeah, I think it's needed. I think you got to clean that up the best you can. And, and it's almost impossible right now. And you got so many players, like you said, on both sides of the ball doing it. Um, it, it just, look, it, it, one side of it will tell you, wow, these players are masters at, you know, drawing fouls or, or you know, or selling it to the referee. But to, to be honest, like, I'm not a big, a big fan of flopping. You know, if you get hit and you, if you get hit and you're trying to, like, sell it a little bit, I like it. But when, when you're just out and out flopping, like, you, know, you see those videos of LeBron, like, not even getting hit. And you, you feel as though he got hit with a boulder or something like that or a sniper. You know, like, he's he's going down and, you know, they give him the call. Those things are just, you know, you got to – I think we got to clean these things up. So, hey, look, it's good that the competition committee is active in trying to clean some of this stuff up. Hopefully, hopefully it works and, you know, you sort of get less and less of it. It won't eradicate it. But if you could cut it down 50 60% at least, I think I think it would be a good thing. Totally agree. I think it's uh, you just don't like to see it to the extent that it's been allowed these days. So um, I think that'll definitely clean the game up. All right, last one for the news items. Scotty Pippen has fired back at MJ again. Now I, I don't know what the hell is going on because pre-documentary Scotty was. You look at all the um, interviews around him when asked about MJ. Very complimentary. Best player I've played with. He's the goat. He's this. He's that. Post that Michael Jordan documentary. 
It hasn't been too amicable between the twos. Um, MJ is yet to fire back and, I, and, he, and he never will. He'll take the high road on that one. But Scotty made some comments along the lines of saying, I saw Jordan play before I came and play with the Bulls. He was a horrible player. He was horrible to play with pro. Um, what's going on there, man? You know, Bogues, I, I always reference the great Tom Cruise in, in, in a movie called Cocktails where he says, and I quote, nothing, everything ends badly or, or unless it wouldn't end. And basically, every time things end, it ends badly at some point. It might take a year, it might take 10 years, it might take 20 years. But I think that, you know, after the documentary, look, Scotty didn't look great in the documentary. And for, for good reason. I mean, all the, you know, all the evidence was there, you know, with the contract and sitting out, signed the bad deal, blamed everybody else but him. He was a great player. Don't get me wrong. He was a great player, elite defender, really you know, great player, Hall of Famer, all of that. But I think that because of the documentary and, you know, Guys like Jordan will always live on. They'll live on for the rest of our lives. Even guys like Scottie Pippen and Hall of Famers are getting forgotten about. Every year that goes by, more and more of them get forgotten for the most part. And I think that they have a really hard time with it. I think he has a really hard time with it. And they, they always want to be in, you know, they always want to be in the limelight. And this is this will give him 15 more seconds of saying like you know, some bullshit that makes no fucking sense, that makes him look dumber than he really is, which is, at its points, really hard to do. And saying that, like, Michael Jordan's an awful player. We're not talking about a guy who averaged 11 points a game. We're talking about the best player that ever lived. And you just sort of, it's just sour grapes. Just get over it. And just get over, just move on. Michael will never go to that because he's the smartest PR guy as far as, like, talking through the media that I've ever seen. He doesn't get... He doesn't really get caught up in bullshit like this because why would you? You know, it's over. You won six championships. And it's, you know, then you then you hear things like, well, if it wasn't for Scotty, Jordan wouldn't want it. Well, you know what? We're never going to find that out. They won six. They won six together. And that's that. And they both made each other a lot of fucking money. And that's it. Move on. Be the better guy. It's not... Hit MJ's fault that you squandered all your money. You bought fucking planes and shit that just, you know, like private planes. The fuck you need to fly private for? It just, yeah, it just goes on and on. And Scotty's had that. He's been in, in, unstable most of his post-playing days where Jordan's a billionaire. It just, you know, it is what it is. And um, yeah, I think I'm rambling on with this. I just think it's bullshit. I, I think that there's no reason for it. I think you should just move on from it. It's fine, but you know, it just goes to show you, like you said, you saw those videos of him saying, you know, by him changing, like doing that, you know, 180 is crazy from, you know, from MJ being the best thing since sliced bread to the worst thing, you know, worst thing since Hitler, for God's sakes. It's fucking brutal. 100%. That's, that, that's what's interesting about it. Like it's something changed that documentary. Uh, I think Scotty's probably was notably. I think he was on record saying he was pissed about how he was portrayed in it with the injuries and how he was holding out for his contract and all that kind of stuff. And I think now mm -hmm. he's kind of changed on, on how he feels based on how that documentary depicted him. But each of their own, just a shame because two of the greatest, you know, one of the one of the greatest duos ever to play in the NBA. And obviously, we were we were, we were younger when they were coming through the ranks, and mm -hmm. 
We're fun to watch. All right, moving on to Australian NBL, not a whole lot of news, but uh, DJ Hogue, welcome to Sydney. We have snagged DJ Hogue from the Cairns Taipans Pro, so a guy that we uh, we had our eye on for a long time, actually, even during the regular season. We thought he was, was was a phenomenal player and could do a lot of things and play multiple positions, and we had him on our shortlist if he was ever available, and he became available, um, and we, uh, we snagged that one pro, so big, big signing for us. Now we're just going to do the hard part and find a coach. Well, I'm available, Bogue. So just, you know, if you, the first thousand or 2,000 guys or girls that say no, just, just keep me at 2,001. I don't want to get you divorced. We went through this last week, pro. Don't want to get you divorced. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to have your angry wife calling me. It's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Actually, she'll be thanking you, but that's, that's beyond, you know, because a half of nothing is nothing. She's not, yeah, really she'll be thanking me until she has to spend. She's got a, a month straight of those kids without any fatherly help, and then she'll, she'll be calling you right back. Don't worry about that. All right, Good moving point. on. Dabble, the social betting experience. You can jump into the band of channels, connect with the Dabble community, and ride a bet all together. Follow, copy bets, and jump into banter. Download the app at the App Store. Uh, dabble, all one word. Dabble socially. Gamble responsibly. Stats, useful or useless, pro? Highest career playoff efficiency in NBA history would be who, pro? Uh, Chamberlain... Michael Jordan, I'm going to go Larry Bird. Close. Nikola Jokic is now the all-time number one. Oh, nice. MJ is number two, and LeBron James is number three. All right. Amazing. Pretty amazing. Useful, useless. Oh, useful for sure. I mean, look what those guys have done in the playoffs. Now, of course, Jokic hasn't won one yet, but like the long-lasting, you know, scoring, rebounding, assists, and all that, all that jazz from – at least two of those guys and Jokic is, you know, coming along year in and year out and what he's been doing this year's playoffs has been amazing. It's definitely useful in my book. Definitely useful. Jokic with a, a fantastic season, fantastic playoffs. Can he cap it off with an NBA finals and performance much like he has be unbelievable run for him to go on. So very useful. And obviously whenever you can jump over MJ and LeBron in anything, it's noteworthy. Teams to trail 3-0 and force game seven pro. The 2023 Celtics, the 2003 Trailblazers, the 94 Nuggets, the 1951 Knicks. Knicks. Uh, the Celtics are the first to have that home, to have that game seven on their home floor pro. But just in all in all, in NBA history, they got a chance to really, really set one for, for the ages pro. Useful, useless. It's useful because, you know, to say it's the first team to host it is is impressive. I've, you know, I watched most besides just the fifty one team. I've watched all of those. It's, it's been pretty impressive. The teams that were trailing three zero came back, tied it, and you know, just to lose it and get out of their fingertips is uh was interesting. Especially that uh, that Denver Nuggets team. I remember that pretty vividly. So, pretty interesting, man. I I would say definitely useful. Yeah, definitely useful. It just doesn't happen often whenever these records are they're there to be broken. And we all, there's no one here that thought they would be in this position. Um, we, we both didn't the way they were playing, but congratulations to the Celtics. They fought their way back in, a bit of luck along the way, but they're there 3-3 three, three, and we're all going to be tuned in tomorrow to watch game seven. Last one, Derek White amongst guards this season, pro. First in blocks during the regular season, first in blocks during the playoffs. Useful, useless. That's pretty useful, man. I mean, you know, first in blocks is I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought Derek White would have been the first among guards in blocks. 
in the play in the regular season or the playoffs. So yeah, I would say it's useful. Good job this week, man. Are you hiring an intern? What are you doing? <laughs> nah, just just ground the internet. Um, yeah, useful. He's been he's been huge. He's been huge for them, and mm-hmm. I just like the way he goes about things too. I don't know if you caught his his post game interview. He's just kind of just so even keel. Um, mm-hmm. Not a lick of arrogance about him. Just really enjoy the way he goes about it. But yeah, definitely a useful, useful stat. All right, Q and A's, and then we'll give us a fact or fake news and get out of here. Q and A Facebook. This is from Chris Charlton. Do you think a voting system like we have for the Brownlow Medal in AFL would work for deciding the MVP for the NBA? Now, pro the Brownlow Medal here in Australia is the way it works is for Australian rules football. Brownlow Medal is essentially mm-hmm. their the traditional most notable MVP. Uh, award mm-hmm. medal, right? And the way it's done is the refer- the umpires or the referees they'll vote th- three votes for the best player, two for the second best, one for the third best, and obviously a losing player can get votes depending on their performance. The umpires every round will will, will write these votes in that umpired the game. It all goes into like a, a safe. Um, no one knows what the what the umpires voted, and then it all gets it's all over one night. Uh, a, a long, you know, six hour, five, six hour session. They'll do each round and announce the votes live, and it's live on TV. It's actually a really, really cool spectacle. Um, that's one thing the AFL do fantastically. So, basically, you're sitting at a dinner. There's a lot of the teams are there. If you're in contention for one of the awards, JFL would let you know. You, you come with your family and your teammates. And who votes? Big, the umpires vote week to week, but they give the votes. Once they've voted week to week, so there's 22 rounds, they vote every week. So each umpire, umpires each umpire that umpires the a game. Sorry? The referees? Yeah, the referees vote. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, very interesting, which, burn- which, which is a whole other issue. <laughs> yeah, what if <laughs> you know, they have a burner just, like Eric Lewis though? Yeah, yeah, how about that? We'll get that in a second actually. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it, I, I like it just because it it's a five, six-hour spectacle. It's a season that was – you know, rather than just doing a generic bullshit award like they do at the ESPYs or whatever, this is actually like a celebration of it would be, let's say, for the NBA. You do, you know, maybe you do every every two week portion or something. I, I don't know how you do it, but you figure it out. But yeah, would you would you think a a voting system like that would work in the uh, in the NBA Pro? No, I don't trust referees to to not be biased. I, actually, everybody's <laughs> biased, but like. You know, referees are guys because they're really vindictive. Look, I I don't mind referees at all. You know me, I protect them. But like, they are vindictive people, especially with guys like you know that are pricks. So I think that well, I like the idea of it for sure, but not in the NBA. I, I think just knowing and hearing stories about referees like liking and not liking certain guys more like the not liking certain guys. I just I, I think that that might be problematic. But I do like the idea of having them vote every week. You know, keeps them up. Those guys. I mean, look if anyone's seeing the league, you know, enough. It's those those guys that are refereeing games. So um, I really do like the idea. But I think that the bias on the other end would be too much. Plus, Eric Lewis would you know would vote himself in four times on on his burner account. So I don't know if he could be able to do that. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think you can do it with. Um with officials just because it's already bad enough with the Mark Jacksons of the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You want to involve, you want to involve a referee. That's why I think it, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense there, but back to, back to the question from Chris Charlton, I think the NBA can do a, 
they, they love to milk out things where they're the mm-hmm. centerpiece of the world, all-star games and finals and the draft. This is another one that they're missing the boat on. If that They should have a formal full-on and do all the awards, I think, in one night. I mean, announcing them on the night of a game in front of your home crowd, uh, yeah, it's okay. it's okay, I get it, it's historic, but I think having a night of celebrations and then celebrating the season that was would be really cool for the NBA to look at, and it would not surprise me if they do it in the future. All right. And then that does segue into Eric Lewis, Pro, which we failed to put on our run sheet, um, which we'll get into just real quickly. So there was a longtime NBA referee, Eric Lewis. He's facing facing punishment from the league if he's found guilty of posting tweets on an alleged burner account, defending himself and other officials from criticism. Investigation is continuing. It's him. (laughs) (laughs) Someone posted a video about three minutes of scrolling his account. It's now deleted. If you want to try to find it, you can't. It's gone. But um, it's him, and he's he's been notorious for being the Celtic fan too, right, bro? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I heard. So yeah, I mean, it's it's, pre- it's pretty funny. Basically, every time they're shitting on on Eric Lewis, he, some there's a random burner account that just pops in the comments and is like, actually, no, you're wrong, or <laughs> like providing <laughs> stats, like no, Dude. no, they're this when he referees, or actually, he didn't ref that game. He was in LA that night, and and I think someone's caught wind that this is probably Eric Lewis. <laughs> Uh, I wonder what the NBA do. I mean, what, what what can you do really? He's defending himself. Maybe he gets a, a 10-game suspension just so they make sure this isn't happening. But I wonder, Pro, begs the question, how many referees have burner accounts? Whew. Yeah. Um, wouldn't be the last, first or last referee to be a narcissist, right? Um, who knows? I would say multiple by, I would say double digits, to be honest, uh, for sure. Like, you know, because look, they get a lot of shit on a daily basis and they try to protect themselves. And for sure, you know, I, I think that people are so sensitive with this social media stuff. It's destroying the world around us as it is. Why not the referees joining in the party, right? And I I, I just think that, yeah, it, it, I think it'll drive you to this, you know, the nut house and want, you know, gives you the idea in your head to, to start a fucking burner account. I don't know, man. I mean, like, did he do anything bad besides protect himself? Not really. Um, it wasn't anything too over the top where he was abusive or anything, but it was clear that he was he was defending himself and, and other people. That's why I'm like, what's, what's the punishable offense? I'm yeah. sure I, – I think they probably have something in their contracts, though, that prevents yeah. them from commenting on social media in any capacity. Now, if it's through a burner – Maybe it's a gray area, but I'm sure the NBA would have that covered, especially considering, you know, we had a GM doing it at one point. Was it um, in, in Philly, right, Colangelo? Burner <laughs> account. So what? I'm sure they've they've dotted their eyes and crossed their T's now with their contractual obligations when their new employees are coming in. And I'm sure if we get an NBA contract, it'd be in there today. But um, I have an idea. I put Eric Lewis and John Morant in a live timeout. Put it on social media. They they both they both got to be in timeout and just put them in the penalty box for just a, a specific a period of time. Yeah, with, with a dunce cap on. I will not start a burner and I will not wave a gun on social media again. So Bart Simpson just writing on the blackboard repeatedly. Yes, maybe that'll work. Yes, no I doubt. Carry a gun. I would not start burner. Um, <laughs> yeah, but pretty interesting anyway. That's never a dull moment in the NBA. All right, this is from Instagram. Uh, question goes. How did you and Mike start collaborating? I reckon Pro is a ripper. That's a good thing, Pro in Australia. When oh, I nice. say you're a, when you're when you're a ripper, that's a that's a decent thing. But we started collaborating the first time I walked into the Mavericks. 
practice facility and this guy was just lighting me up for no reason. <laughs> and then we just oh, hit it off yeah. ever since like two, you know, two puppy dogs. Yeah. I think it was, yeah, we would do like shooting after practice and stuff and I tried to shield you from outside uh, shooting coach influences and, you know, uh, you shot the shit and fucked around and I think it was that time in Denver where you missed a few in a row and you booted the ball into the top deck in Denver in Denver's arena and then we spent some time, <laughs> you know, you know, working on your free throw a little bit. But yeah, it was pretty fun. And then we started going out to eat and stuff, and you were telling me about you would talk about how you guys used to do. I never heard of that, uh, the game where first guy to you know, everybody puts their cell phone in the middle, first first guy to look at their phone, pays for bill pays for dinner. Touch their phone. Was, uh, she yeah, touch their phone. Yeah, it was like, it was yeah, like yeah. being around crack addicts. It's unbelievable. It, it, <laughs> it was unbelievable, but yeah. And then I remember I had some both. guys that would like literally just be like, "Fuck it, he's like, I'll pay for dinner. <laughs> Give me my phone back." All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I remember the time I was walking around my neighborhood. I think it was during COVID, and I was like, "Bogues." Like you, you just announced that you you retired. You're doing the the podcast, and I was like, "Well." <laughs> Who's gonna be a co-host? And he goes, "Well, you, you asshole. You're on a you're on a short list of you." And I'm like, "Ah, oh, fuck. Here we go." And I remember you telling me this. He says, "All right, you can do it, but you will never work in the NBA again." I said, "Both. <laughs> My fucking phone ain't gonna ring anyway. What do I have to lose?" And I remember, I, I remember that that that's when we started really talking about stuff and you know doing the idea of the show and stuff like that. I had no idea. To be honest, the first four shows, I thought you were gonna like you were like talking to other people to replace me. Like this is like fucking pardon, pardon my take or whatever on ESPN where there's like 800 people Rotating. trying to get the job. But yeah, but like I didn't know, but I didn't know what this was going to be. And I remember just talking and yeah, that's what we do. We, you know, we would be in group chats together with other players, broke Ryan broke off other, you know, other coaches that we knew or whatever. And we would always talk shit, talk about the league and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a f pretty funny fucking ordeal. And here we are, two years in. So thanks, Stormy underscore one hundred nine on Instagram. But yeah, we've uh, we were we were before the podcast. Pro and I were still pretty much in touch, not not super regularly, but every couple yeah. of weeks he'd send me some funny shit from the NBA or look at this dickhead or we'd be like, wow, what a game. And then yeah, um, yeah I mean, thought it'd be a pretty good collab, you know. So it's worked out so far. Last one will come from at Timmy Kov on Twitter. Bose, what's the one thing you think we need to do a better job of teaching our juniors in Australia to better prepare them to play in the States or at the college level? Oh, this is a, a real pet peeve of mine. Um, but in Australia, I think the there's a fine line that I've noticed pro around even with young young sports where under under eights, under tens, under twelves, right? You don't want to be a coach that's like yelling at these kids to, 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 to do this and to do that and to go here and to go there. And, you know, you're not Phil Jackson for under eights. The problem I have in Australia is there's there's a lot of people that are coaches of any sport you can pick, basketball, football, soccer, tennis, that are just doing it to do it. They're, just, they're not really passionate about it. It's it's kind of a job or they're doing it for hours for their university degree or their whatever, right, whatever the reasons is. And – whenever you go to some of these coaches and you're like, hey, like give the kids a bit more direction, they're a bit confused here or like, you know, have a bit of passion, a bit of energy about yourself with your sessions, you know, because kids will, you know, if, if you're energetic and engaging, they're going to, you know, you're God to them at that age, right? What I see, at least in Australia is, oh, it's all about having fun. 
let the kids have fun. And I, I totally agree. You want the kids to have fun. You don't want them to be bogged down by running sets. But it could be something simple as, hey, like when you get the ball on a rebound, you know, always look ahead. Something simple like that. Or, hey, you know, don't dribble with your head down. You're going to run into someone or blah, 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 blah. That's now conflated with, oh, let the kids have fun. So I think that's one thing I would change in Australia is with coaches, especially at a young, young age, is stop relying on the, oh, they're just here to have fun. Yes, they are, but you still want to put in basic principles of, of skill development and teaching and, and all that kind of stuff whilst having fun, of course. I don't expect coaches to be um, – you know, yelling at a kid 67 times in the space of 15 minutes about every small thing they've done wrong. Of course, you want to let them play through mistakes. But if it's like a simple thing, like, hey, you know, you're holding your tennis racket wrong, hold it like this, you know, tweak your hand a little bit or whatever, golf club, or don't kick a footy at this point, kick it at this point. They're really important. And I think we've gone away from that because everyone's so afraid to, 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 to give feedback, whether it's deemed negative or it's criticism. But kids want to get better. And, and I think the second thing is valuing winning. I think we – as a society, we've devalued winning heavily in all walks of life, um, not just sport. And I think it is important to – you want to have fun, you want to be coached, but you also want to value winning There's 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 because there's a process that comes with winning. You hear all great athletes, coaches, GMs, entrepreneurs, whatever, that there's a process to get to winning or to become a winner in life. And it, it's not as easy as everyone's a winner. And I think constantly telling kids that everyone's a winner when – you know, one team lost and one team won, there's val- there's le- valuable lessons in both of those. If you, your kid's team loses, there's valuable lessons. What can you do to not try and lose next week? Um, did you did you get enough training in? Were you listening at training? Were you eating right? Were you getting your sleep? There's all these different lessons you learn with losing, same as winning. Like, you, you what did you do differently? Why are you winning all of a sudden? Well, I'm spending more time. I'm watching more film. Um, and that's where I think we've gone away from, like, those hard conversations. And I think it's probably similar in the US pro with what you're dealing with over there. But it's something that I continue to notice here where it's, you know, be all and end all. If you criticize a, or try to give feedback to a coach, it's, oh, it's all about just having fun. It's like, well, it is, but you still need to, you still need to take what you're doing seriously and have some passion for it. But that's kind of my take on a pro. Yeah, folks. I think, look, the question was to get ready for the college level, right? And not just to get ready as a junior player, right? Just a normal junior player that's tr- just trying to go out recreationally, recreationally, right? I think that when you're getting ready for college, I think putting seriousness behind it, routine, developing a skill to get you in a game, watching film, trying to eliminate some of the mistakes that you make, not trying to be mistake-free, but eliminate some of the big mistakes that you make. And having a plan, having a workout plan, having a, you know, taking care of your body, talking about diet, and you really need to have that whole package and talk uh, on top of meeting regularly and talking to that player about, look, this is what I see. This is what I see that you're doing really well. This is what I see that's not really, you're not really doing well. And giving them a plan skill-wise that's going to impact winning. And I think that that's important to have coaches that really know what they're doing with that, you know, teaching them the skill that's going to impact winning, get them in game and increase their value, and then just developing skills that their position needs to really be good at that collegiate level and talking to them about routine and and not getting tired of it because that's what's going to get them through things. And I think that that 
in the United States, there's not really a seriousness between that. Everybody just plays AAU. They just play, play, play. They work out with a trainer, working on nonsense that they're never going to do in a game. They always have the ball in their hands. They don't really ever learn how to play without the ball in their hands and how to be a role player. And then what happens is they're being fed all this bad information from trainers, AAU coaches, high school coaches, parents, Everybody hanging around them, talking about they got to be the best player, best player. All you know, this this coach is screwing them, that coach is screwing them. And what happens when they get to college and they have to play off of other really good players? They can't do it, and that's why when there's any little type of adversity, they end up leaving. And I think that having a serious plan, being coachable, and having real conversations in real time feedback about how they're doing, good or bad, and I think that that's really important that that's what's going to get them ready for the college level. And you're right. It, it, look, they want to be in college, so they have to impact winning. And winning has to be important. And having those sessions, we're talking about the things that they're doing to impact winning and taking away from winning based on what the, you know, some of the correctable things that they're doing that needs to be fixed. I think all that's important. So having a plan, sticking to it, and giving them real-time feedback is probably the keys to success as far as, you know, getting a player ready to play in college. Yeah, totally agree. And that, that comes back with sometimes it's harsh and sometimes it's not. There's a, there's a, there's a need and a want for both of those. There's some positive reinforcement and there's also some criticism that's going to hurt. Um, and it's hard when you deal with parents as well. On top of that, parents will get emotional about criticism towards their child, especially from a coach. Um, you got to take it all in stride and have an open conversation about it and, I think um, it starts from grassroots level, in my opinion, at least in Australia now. And I think the, the messaging around Australia now, the AOC, oh, sorry, the IOC and the AOC, Australian Olympic Committee, the messaging is really going towards it's not about a result, it's about fun. It is to an extent, but with that with that mentality, you're never going to medal again at Olympic Games. And I think that's, that's a pretty dangerous thing to be pushing. Look, you want our kids to have fun and enjoy, but you also want them to give them the tools to be able to get better. And I think that's what we're lacking at times. And there's plenty of coaches that do it the right way, but there's also a lot that le- they leave a lot on the table, a lot to be desired. So hopefully, um, that can be a change. And if you notice, you know, if you notice your your kids' trainer or coach or whatever, you know, not 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 pushing hard enough, parents could you know go up to go up to the trainer and the coach afterwards and say, oh, hey, can you push push my kid more? Like I want I want to, I want I want more time when they're doing things wrong or encouraging or whatever it is. A lot of coaches are open to that and should always be open to that kind of engagement. But uh, we'll see how that goes. All right, fact or fake news, what do you got for us this week, bro? Folks, if the Miami Heat win tomorrow night, Joe Mazzula will be the coach of the Boston Celtics. Fact or fake news? Fact, he will be the coach. I think he's done enough to prove that he's, you know, you you get to a game seven from down 3-0. Um... Look, he's still learning. He's still not perfect, but you get from from where you are to now. Yeah, I think he still deserves to be there. Look, his his finals not making the finals are going to be a failure for the Celtics. I think it is. I think it is. If they don't make it, I think it's a failure of a season. Considering where they were last season, I think they let one slip last season. They felt like they did against the Warriors, and they you know everyone thought they'd come back even stronger this year. So they'll feel this is a, a failure. But I, I I think in the grand scheme of things. Okay, you don't bring him back. Who are you bringing in? Nick Nurse, Kenny Atkinson. Like, I mean, you're back. You're back to try and reinvent the wheel. I'd give him another year to at least see how he goes and grows. And he's new, relatively, you know, new to the whole game, right? Like, he hasn't. How long has he been in the NBA for a total? He's been in the league 
probably for three or four years. I uh, was in the D League. He coached Division Two basketball, played at West Virginia, and yeah, he's only been in the league for a few years. In high school, right? Yeah, that's what that's what I mean. Like he hasn't been around that long to 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 see the job that he's still doing. Yeah, he's got some issues for sure, but. You know, it's it's just everyone's comparing him to to EMA because he got to the finals. Now, if he gets to the finals, then what? You know, like and, and it's highly it, it's more likely than not that he's going to get them to the finals um, with with the way going into this game seven. But even if he doesn't, I think he's done enough to to prove himself. Another year of experience will do him wonders. He'll spend his off season, you know, trying to learn from his mistakes. So I'm going to say, um, fact, he's going to be the head coach next season. Yeah, fact. You Bogues, look, I think that when you made him the coach. I think he had to think that, look, he's not experienced yet. He's regardless of the team that he has, which he had a really loaded team that made the finals the year before. You are expecting at least that this year. You had a lot of scandal that he had to take over for. And look, he's never called a timeout in the NBA level, you know, in a real game. So there's going to be bumps in the road at this. You know, especially in the playoffs where, you know, playoff basketball, I don't think there's a bigger discrepancy between regular season and playoff sort of setting and energy and pressure than any other sport than the NBA. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's just my opinion. And I, I've been around regular season in playoffs and it's a like it's a huge change of everything. And preparation, routine, everything just changes and the pressure and everything mounts. And I think that you have to expect him, even if you lost this series, even if you lost 4-0, that, look, you entrusted him to be your head coach. I thought he did a really good job throughout the year. I think his roster isn't perfect as far as the personalities on it. He's going to have to feel himself out a little bit, figure out the things that he has to change and tweak. And... You know, if they won the championship, great. If you didn't win the championship, hey, look, it is what it is. It's, you know, I thought he did a really good job. And I think he should be the coach, regardless of what happened, you know, throughout the playoffs. I think, you know, at very least, if he did get eliminated, like I said before, maybe maybe change his staff and give him a little bit more, you know, a little more experience to sort of to bounce things off of and give give ideas. But um, I think making mistakes in basketball player development and coaching development is really important. And yeah, there's millions of dollars at stake, and you, know, you only have a, a small window to win championships in most organizations. I get all that. But you had the choice to bring this guy in or hire somebody else. And you chose him. And I think professionally, you know, I think you owe it to him to stand by him for at least a second year, regardless of what happened this year. And I thought he's done a good job. Is he perfect? No. What coach is? And I, I think he's going to make mistakes and make his lumps. And, hey, look, some coaches don't get it to the third or fourth year. But I thought he guided you pretty well. I thought he kept control of it most of the year. You know, I think there were, were some times where the team was a little off. But, like, yeah, it goes, goes with the most teams. But I thought he did a good job. I think he deserves to be the coach. I say fact, he will, he will be the head coach next year, regardless. Agree. All right, wraps up another episode of the Rogue Bogues Basketball Series. Appreciate all the support. Give us a follow on socials. You should know where they're at. We'll see you all next week for hopefully what is a start to the NBA Finals. Thanks, bro. All right, Bogues. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Let's get rogue.